Hi guys, welcome back to part two of episode 145 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. Hope you're enjoying this series on Yossi Ginsberg. I know a lot of you said that you hadn't heard of him and neither had I, as I said, until, you know, the start of start of the year. So I'm glad to uh, spread the word of Yossi um, and Kevin and Marcus and Carl to an extent. Um, so... This episode will go into Yossi's experience in the jungle in Bolivia. Um, I will just hit the main points. Um, please don't. I, obviously, as the podcast grows, like more people email with kind of additional details and things. And if you do that, the likelihood is I won't be including it, like unless it's crucial to an ongoing case, like in an upcoming episode or anything, uh, just tiny details. So I'm sure that, you know, after this, I'll get 10 emails saying, this is how starvation works, not this or whatever. And yeah, just try just to accept it, like the story for what it is and the work that I've done. That's all. Um, Because I can't reply to every email and say, okay, like, thank you for contributing that. I generally only include updates um, that are crucial to a case or where I've specifically said, does anyone know the answer to that? Um, if I don't ask that, I, I, I'm not really looking for it, if you know what I mean. Um, but uh, I did get one interesting piece of information, like just from the last episode, um, Patron Elise said that the name Moshe is actually Moses um, in Hebrew, uh, which makes sense because I see it all the time, actually. So where we left off, an American, an Israeli, a Swiss and an Austrian walked into a bar, kind of. They did at the start. And yes, it is a Swiss. That's how they say it. It's not a Swiss man or you know, Swiss woman or Swiss person. It's a Swiss. That's how you say it. So Yossi, where we left off, had become, you have to listen to part one if you haven't listened. He'd become separated from um, his friends, uh, Marcus and Carl, the elusive Austrian geologist and the Swiss teacher that had been traveling with Yossi for quite a while had walked off to hike out. Now, (laughs) at the end of this episode, I'll go into kind of Yossi's experience in the jungle and then the follow-up after that and then theories about outstanding questions in this, which there's a lot of them, and thoughts that I've had um, and some extra additional research that I've kind of done. So I've never seen that research anywhere else. So I'm just saying if I see it pop up on anyone else's podcast, it's that's kind of what I did. Um, and I'm not into plagiarism. So I'm just kind of outlining these things at the beginning. Um, so, and then I'll go into, um, kind of a few (laughs) reviews of the movie that made me laugh out loud, but one of them, um, that I'll start off with in this instance said, why would a guy whose feet are rotting walk out instead of sitting on the raft? And this is why Hollywood is a rot it's rotted people's brains in more ways than one. So like socially and (laughs) like just in every possible way. And it's getting worse and worse, but it's rotted people's brains in the sense that there's no desire to go off and look up the actual story. People just take things on face value. And it's why I just can't watch things much anymore. Or I just don't, you know, want people's opinions about movies. I don't read reviews, you know, because normally I like a movie that people hate and vice versa. But like, 
they were like, how dumb is that guy for hiking out? It's because Marcus's feet like were, it was uh, meant to be a few days hike out, as Carl put it, whereas the rafting trip was going to be like a couple of weeks longer. So it was the quickest way for Marcus to get medical attention. Um, and then another one said, when Yossi washed up on the gravel beach in the movie, why, why didn't the dumbass actually, most people called him Potter because Daniel Radcliffe plays him. Every single review was Potter gave him the shits or Potter annoyed me. They said, why didn't they just walk up the riverbank again to where he'd lost his friend? Well, first of all, Yossi traveled for almost 30 minutes in wild rapids down the Tuiki River. And secondly, and that's a long walk back. Secondly, there was no riverbank because as I explained, the San Pedro Canyon becomes high walls. So you have to divert into the jungle and then you'd have to wind your way back, which without a map is really fucking hard. Um, so yeah, just maybe, you know, but I'll, I'll wrap up with a couple of other ones at the end that I found interesting. So when Yossi landed after about 30 minutes of this crazy um, being tossed around in the Tuiki River, which is like 100 metres wide, in this massive storm in the wet season in rapids that really no one could survive, he finally washed up, as I said at the end of part one, on this tiny little gravel it's not a beach. It's, you know, like a shoreline. It was tiny. And it was almost meant to be that he washed up there and it finally tossed him out. And Yossi told the Jewish Chronicle a couple of years ago about when he washed up. He said, quote, when I finally arrived on the shore, I had a moment of complete exhilaration that I had survived. A few seconds later came the first feeling of disaster and despair. Even then, I thought it would only be a few hours until we connected again. The toughest moment was after a few days when I realised that I was completely alone, unquote. So Yossi knew immediately that whatever happened, he had to stay close to the river. They generally tell you to stay close to a water source and make your way down uh, the way the river is flowing. But the problem was there was no vegetation, nothing to eat or anything like that near the river. So he had to go back into the thick foliage of the jungle. And I put up quite a lot of pictures for patrons in Patreon for them to be able to picture the landscape of this episode because I think people have the wrong idea. They're probably picturing something a lot less intense and smaller than what this area actually is. Um, the river really just had really thick vegetation that wasn't edible and there was nowhere to for him to, you know, set up camp or anything there. Not that he had his tent anymore or anything like that. And then darkness fell and Yossi would say later, quote, the nights without doubt were the worst of all. As darkness descends, there is no light whatsoever. The canopy swallows the stars and moon and the darkness is as thick as velvet. At night, all the noises emerge, the screeches and roars and barks and calls and things are moving around. It was simply overwhelming and I had no fire or gun to protect myself. If not for the ability to daydream, I would have consumed myself during these nights of horror, unquote. You can just picture that, pitch black and snarls and knowing there's jaguars, there's snakes everywhere, um, there's monkeys making crazy noises, there's a lot of howler monkeys. Their colours are actually unbelievable. They're like blue and yellow, um, a lot of them out there. There's macaws making noises. There's all these kind of weird native animals that I'd never I'd never seen before, Um 
Yossi did not have a tent or shelter and he would really just try to um, secret his way away or cover himself in things like, you know, ferns or fronds to stay hidden from predators, but also to keep out of the raging winds and rain. I actually put up a, a Patreon poll uh, yesterday just to gauge what would scare people the most uh, at this moment. And I said, was it the wildlife? Was it the wet season? Was it being alone and not knowing where your friends were? Uh, or was it, you know, the hunger? And um, it was currently, it is overwhelmingly um, the the animals of the jungle that would scare people the most. Um, I think most people can kind of think, well, I could go a bit without food, but that reality is um, once you're in it, is an entirely different ball game. Um, I got caught in a torrential downpour today for like 30 minutes while out walking and I was completely soaked through and I'm still, my hair's still soaked. And I was thinking, imagine 20 days of this in the Amazon. <laughs> like I just couldn't stay wet for that amount of time. I just couldn't do it. And remember, Yossi's in jeans um, and he's in like a checked shirt and, and that's it. Now, it does get kind of cold at night in these parts, obviously, but uh, luckily during the day it was temperate because it's a, a rainforest. So that was one less thing in the elements that he had to deal with, which would be hypothermia. One night early on in the experience, Yossi was awoken by a rustling sound as he lay trying to sleep, essentially with one eye open. And Yossi didn't sleep much for 20 days. Um, he would be constantly alert, obviously. Um, but this sound was different. And Yossi sat up and he had his lighter, as I said in part one, and a few other things in his pack. And he lit the lighter and right there in his face was a snarling jaguar, which would be the end of me pretty much. I love wildcats, but not like this. And Yossi thinking very quickly, but also thinking about a James Bond movie with Roger Moore that he had seen years before. Yossi frantically, but very kind of steadily reached behind him into his bag pulled out a can of mosquito repellent that he luckily had with him. He lit the lighter again and um, sprayed the mosquito repellent can, essentially creating a homemade blowtorch, which set off a giant flame that blew into the face of the jaguar. And the jaguar, shocked, ran back into the darkness of the jungle. And Yossi would say later that he'd seen it in the movie, Live and Let Die. So it's one example of things in movies that, you know, aren't totally toxic and have mashed people's brains. So keep that in mind um, at some point. We used to do that when we were teenagers, like do that with aerosol cans and that. That's bad. He also, um, early on, which is depicted in the movie, he had a saw on kind of the middle of his head and one of the reviews of the movie said Harry Potter's lightning scar has been replaced with maggots which really made me laugh um he essentially in the movie it looks like he just pulls out one but Yossi used a rock to essentially cut his forehead open because he felt something festering in there and when he cut it open um he discovered about 14 worms in reality that he pulled out that had 
basically laid eggs um, under his skin and were growing in his forehead. I know a lot of people are struggling at this point. In the movie, he pulls out one and as someone rightfully says, the next scene, he doesn't have a scar on his head anymore. Um, But in reality, Yossi said he pulled out 14 worms. It'd be sickening. Another time, because it was just muddy and wet and flooded and there was no escape from the rain, uh, Yossi ended up losing his footing and sliding down a very muddy slope. And unfortunately, what broke his fall was a broken stick sticking up out of the mud halfway down the slope that actually impaled his rectum, as they put it. Um, So Yossi is not doing well. But I do believe, like I said on part one, that without his Israeli military training and his like fortitude, um, ancestral fortitude, I don't think he would have lasted more than a few days. One morning, Yossi woke up and his entire body was stinging and aching um, and he was in immense amounts of pain. And when he stood up, he realised that he had created a bed on a termite's nest, which he had slept on overnight. Yossi obviously rapidly started dropping weight, which the episode picture, if you're listening on Spotify, is Yossi when he was discovered after three weeks in the jungle, which you probably already figured out. Um, His skin was starting to rot and he went from being a very fit, tall, muscular Israeli soldier to very quickly beginning to go into the process of starving to death. Now, I went into a little bit about of research about starvation to give you an idea of what was happening as this time went on. And I'm sure most of you probably already know. Again, I don't want 10 emails like I would normally get explaining the scientific processes of starvation. This is just an additional thing that I'm adding in. So Science Direct had an article I found about the stages of starvation. And starvation essentially starts when you digest a meal And it stops when you ingest another one. Um, And unfortunately, these days, as much as in short-term spurts, it's okay for you. The word fasting has become, unfortunately, interchangeable with starvation. And fasting has a positive connotation because a lot of cultures do it. And I do it, um, you know, a few days, a couple of days a week um, for different health reasons and it really helps my gut and stuff. Um, but I'm talking about like people who fast for like a week, two weeks. Um, it's just not good. You're only meant to do it for certain periods of time, 16 hours at a time, you know, things like that. So the process of starvation is very detailed and I, I just couldn't find a way to explain it, all the metabolic changes that start occurring. I'm sure most of you kind of understand, but your body essentially starts uh, it, the conversion of um glycogen, which is essentially like a form of excess glucose, and it starts break, turning that into glucose. And then once your body has started using it starts using up body fats for energy um, and you'll experience like muscle wastage essentially as the body fats, once it's used up carbohydrates and things, I'm not explaining this very well, you'll start using like seeing extreme like muscle loss when it starts eating, like using up muscle mass as well. Um, at the kind of final stage where it's it's got nowhere else kind of to go, which you'll 
images of people when who were they liberated from Auschwitz and concentration camps and things like that you you wonder how they made it that far but at this stage many people usually experience cardiac arrest or they simply succumb to a range of illnesses that come with a compromised immune system as a result of your body just not being able to fight off um, any kind of basic cold or infection or virus or anything bacterial and then you've got to add on the exertion that Yossi is putting out walking all day every day as well as the body having to use you know fuel in order to uh, heal these different wounds that he's developing it is why anorexia is the most deadly mental illness to this day and why um, you know long-term anorexics often end up dying of um, a heart attack my friend Lorena who was on an episode talked um on this podcast about she was hospitalized with anorexia um, and she was fed like um, through a tube and I've seen photos. It's shocking. Um, A lot of you probably know this at this stage that when you are able to kind of be given food again, particularly in people who survive the camps and things, it is not a matter of just eating a meal and starting eating again. If you start eating regularly again, you'll probably die. Um, a lot of people die after they were liberated from the camps. Um, it is a very slow process where tiny amounts have to be ingested and it has to be overseen in particular with people who are overcoming eating disorders. Um, It has to be overseen by doctors um, and specialists and nutritionists. Um, Similarly, Yossi isn't taking in enough to survive, but he's also putting a lot out. And the general rule of weight loss as well is, um, you know, put out more than you put in and you'll you'll see weight loss again in the camps. um, Many don't know that in concentration camps, then the diet that Uh, Jewish people and other prisoners, obviously not just Jews, uh, the diet that they were given was actually determined by Nazi doctors and and nutritionists. They gave them just enough to keep them alive, but not enough for them to have any additional energy to do anything um, in terms of trying to escape or plotting anything you'll it's like, um, I can't think of her name right now, but the girl I've got her book Yonmi Yonmi Park. Um, she's a North Korean uh, defector. She escaped. She's amazing. And she um, she talks about how in North Korea they give them, there's just enough food to think about your next meal and to constantly be just thinking about food. And she says that they keep you in that state so that you're hyper-focused on just finding food and that nothing else matters. You're in that state of survival. So you're not looking at you know, overthrowing the dynasty or trying to escape. You're just trying to live day to day. According to Medicine Net, um, researchers have just like basically figured out over time that a person can live generally for about three weeks without food. Uh, water is not sufficient to survive on its own, but with, they say about 1.5 litres of water a day, you can live to a maximum of around two months without food. But again, Yossi, um, he's drinking water that's probably contaminated um, in these parts. He doesn't talk much about his toilet situation. 
but I imagine it probably wasn't pretty. Um, without water, you will die within three to five days. And you don't just take in water through, you know, orally drinking water. You, there's water in all kinds of different things. And you also take in a tiny amount of water when you have a shower and things like that through your skin. Um, but no water at all. Uh, you won't survive beyond three to five days. Um, basically there's a lot of, they've done studies into hunger strikes and things in prison and political, political people who have gone on hunger strikes. And that's when they figured out that if you drink around 1.5 liters of water a day, uh, you can survive for a longer period of time. But I'm not sure if Yossi was able to get clean water enough at this point, but he must have been able to. Um, it was wet season, but it's not like a matter of just going down to the river because if you look at this river, you wouldn't be drinking this water. So they've essentially figured out that the absolute lowest BMI, if you know what a BMI is in school, unbelievably, I don't think they would do it anymore, but we had to, in school, weigh ourselves in front of everyone um, in sport one one class a year. Uh, they'd measure our height and measure our weight and they'd take it down and, and then they'd say it in front of everyone. I went to an old girls school and they'd determine your BMI. Um, and a BMI from my memory of below 18 is considered underweight. And I used to be very proud of my BMI of 17, which, um, things change as you get older guys. <laughs> um, believe me. So according to the journal of nutrition, men, will generally succumb to death um, if they have a BMI of less than 13, which is incredibly low. And women will generally die um, with a BMI of less than 11. Also, according to the Journal of Nutrition, women actually, their body composition uh, makes them able to withstand starvation longer because we have higher levels of fats and things like that. So ladies, when you look at your belly or, you know, your boobs and your back fat and you feel like crap like I do most of the time, um, remind yourself that, you know, biologically these things serve, you know, a purpose um, in an evolutionary lens, I suppose. You should be grateful for them. Um, you also have to consider Yossi's output. As I said, technically he should have died early on. So his survival really is quite incredible. I found an article um, about a guy who fasted for apparently 382 days in 1966. Now, this was in Science Alert, and there's very little out there other than this article about this guy, but they did refer to old newspaper articles from um, Scottish newspapers at the time. Now, I don't know if I believe this guy's story completely. So <clears throat> he was 27 years old. He was a Scotsman. His name was Angus Barbieri, and he claims to have fasted for 382 days. Now, doctors continually did blood tests and things, and they said that the blood test showed that he wasn't consuming any food, which I don't know how they can determine that. Um, but also um, they backed up the fact that he was not eating anything. So the reason that he did this was because he was grossly obese, which was way less common at the time. He weighed 456 pounds, which is around 207 kilos. Um, and he was a big boy. Now in the sixties, doctors actively uh, promoted quote unquote prolonged starvation uh, to treat severe obesity, which was, as I said, way less common as a thing than it is today, obviously, which is a side effect of a lot of things, sedentary lifestyle, um, 
processed foods, refined sugars mainly. Um, Angus was grossly obese and he wanted to get down to 82 kilos. So he wanted to essentially lose 120 kilos or more. And the doctors said to him to do short-term fasts. They meant for like a few days at a time, stop, start again. And he really got into it to the point where he decided he just wasn't going to eat anymore. And he seemed really like happy about it and didn't seem to be cracking up. Now, um, despite doctors telling him to stop this and him saying, I'm not eating anything, blood tests indeed showed that he wasn't consuming any food, but he was able to drink black black coffee, black tea and sparkling water, um, all of which are calorie-free. Calorie um, at the end of the 382 days, Angus was down to 180 pounds from 456 pounds. And five years on when they followed up with him, he'd kept off all of the weight that he had lost, but he'd gone back to eating, but just healthily. Now, I don't know if I fully buy that he wasn't consuming any food. I'm not going to get into my own experience, but probably like 10 years ago, I lost about 35 kilos through not really eating much and um, becoming a lot more active at the time. Um, and I wasn't Angus's size, obviously, when I started. And he never reports all of the symptoms that Lorena talked about when she talked about anorexia, all that I experienced. Lightheadedness is, is very quickly onset, a very slow heart rate, um, all kinds of different things, excruciating headaches. He, he said that he was totally fine. Now, I know everyone's different, but I feel like once in a while he was probably eating something. One person claims to have gone without food longer than Angus Barbieri, and this is a guy called Dennis Goodwin, who he did 385 days apparently on a hunger strike to assert his innocence because he was charged with rape and he said he didn't do it. And ultimately he went to the courts and they ruled, which happens in a lot of cases, especially with people who have anorexia, that he had to be force fed through a tube um, in order to, you know, live, which he did. People in India and places like that regularly fast for 40 days or more. It's They've been doing it for thousands of years. And I personally know a girl who can do seven days, which just seems crazy to me for a lot of reasons. Your body needs fuel, even if it's, you know, just something basic. Um, some of the side effects of starvation include faintness, dizziness, uh, blood pressure, a massive drop in blood pressure, a slowed down heart rate, hypotension, weakness, dehydration, thyroid malfunction, abdominal pain, low potassium, body temperature fluctuations, post-traumatic stress or depression, and ultimately cardiac arrest or complete organ failure. This is why a lot of people who have survived crazy things in the wilderness have resorted to cannibalism for survival. Now, it's why Yossi said in the first part, that he said when he got so hungry that he would have easily eaten human flesh. And people have obviously used cannibalism for survival, um, including obviously the most famous case, which I will cover at some point as it's one of my favourite stories, the footballers or the rugby players who crashed in the Andes Mountains, which the movie Alive um, and the book ended up um, kind of covering the story of. Now, when they did that because they were 
uh, Catholics and it was a big issue and they had to talk it over and it's depicted in the book as well as in the movie. Um, they basically went to the Vatican afterwards and asked for forgiveness, which is really sad because they didn't kill people to eat them. These people were already dead as a result of avalanches or the initial plane crash. They didn't do it initially and they all discussed it and, and things like that. And when they went to the Pope at the time afterwards, not that I put much stock into what he says, especially not the current Pope, but he basically said to them, there is a difference between doing it for the enjoyment of eating humans and doing it for survival. And you're allowed to do it for survival. And he kind of, um, what's the word? Freed them of their sins, you know. Um, but Yossi, there was no human, so he wasn't resorting to cannibalism. He did eat from bird's nests, which is really kind of, graphic scene in the movie where he took kind of like this raw like macaw egg and bites into it and all the blood and stuff is oozing out um and he would find them but very rarely um and it was kind of sad because he started feeling very at one with nature and the different animals around him and this mother macaw or whatever it was had left its eggs to obviously um, go and find food and had made this beautiful nest and stuff. And he just felt kind of, as much as he was starving, he also felt sickened at what he was doing, you know, to this mother who would come home and her eggs would be gone. He would walk for days without realising that he'd done a loop and he would end up right back where he began, which would be maddening. And he would lay down in the mud and just cry. It's very like Blair Witch Project. He obviously couldn't catch monkeys like they'd done with Carl at the beginning, otherwise he would have, as he didn't have the gun and he didn't have a machete. He had no way of catching them, so he said that he just stood there hoping that they'd fall out of trees, which did not work because if you've ever seen a monkey, they're pretty agile and they can hold on pretty well. Not to mention there's snakes everywhere and he would constantly be alert to snakes just winding their way around and hissing all around him and you can look up pictures of just the sheer number of snakes in this area. Locals can survive out here kind of for an extended period of time and they have for centuries um, if not for thousands of years but the uninitiated cannot and this is why a lot of people when they read this story just think these are dumb boys who who just you know bought it upon themselves essentially. At one point a tree branch fell on Yossi and it pretty much uh, gouged out part of his side which was rapidly becoming infected as well and then we get to the second week in the Amazon. In the second week Yossi suddenly one day saw what appeared to be a Amazon tribal woman um, hiding behind a tree and they quickly kind of became friends and for a few days they they travelled together, walked together um, and slept next to each other at night um, and they had an unspoken agreement, as Yossi puts it, because she didn't speak and, and he didn't speak her language. Like he said he talked to her but she wouldn't talk back. He told the son later, quote, She appeared in the worst moment when I really gave up. I talked to her all the time and she didn't talk back. I built a camp for us both and made a space for her to sleep next to me, unquote. After a few days, Yossi woke up one day and the woman was no longer there. And it was then that reality dawned on Yossi that this woman 
that he had spent time with for days had actually been a hallucination and that Yossi now had the clarity to know that. He started to think that he had lost his mind. He said later, quote, I was trying to hug her and I realised that there was nobody there. I freaked out because if she's not there, it means I'm crazy. I thought I lost my sanity. I was very scared. I don't know exactly how to explain it. Maybe my subconscious pulled it out, unquote. He now believes that spending time with this hallucination actually saved his life and gave him, as I talked about in part one with Viktor Frankl, which I'll talk more about in a minute, meaning in a time of great hardship. He he believes that she saved his life. He said, quote, that's something very deep about human nature. We'll do more to save someone else's life than our own because I couldn't help myself anymore. I felt it was over. But the moment she was there, suddenly I had responsibility, unquote. He also told TEDx Melbourne in a talk a few years ago that he found the state of survival, that uber primitive state of survival, getting through minute to minute, was the best state to be in for him at the time and especially in a crisis because everything else goes away and you are super focused on what needs to be done. That's very reminiscent about what a lot of people in the 1996 Everest disaster talked about. You are completely focused on your most basic instincts. Long term, obviously, living in a constant state of fear, especially with panic disorders and things, is not good for your health. But short term, it can be to get things done. By now, we're at day 17, if you can believe it. And Yossi is essentially a skeleton at this point. Then he heard a noise overhead and he couldn't believe what he was hearing because it was the sound of a plane approaching and flying pretty much exactly over where he lay under a canopy in the jungle. The jungle canopy was so thick, however, that the plane just flew overhead and obviously had no chance of seeing him and they wouldn't have been able to see him. He recalled, quote, when the plane passed, it just broke me. That surge of hope was the worst thing that happened to me, unquote. And this really brought me back to what Viktor Frankl said um, about if you've read his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which I recently did, and I'm going to read you an excerpt of now. Um, he found that through his experience in the camps, that apathy or loss of hope was the worst possible thing um, that anybody could kind of fall into, essentially. It's kind of like what they say in Shawshank Redemption, you know, hope is a dangerous thing, um, but maybe the best thing or whatever he says. And that that is completely true. To overcome, you have to find meaning and you have to have a goal leading you forward. Frankel said that in the concentration camps, he would see prisoners that were seemingly okay. They constantly had a simmering state of, uh, you know, colds and viruses or typhus in particular from overcrowding and unsanitary conditions. But he would see them lose hope and then just suddenly refuse to get out of bed. And the Nazis would be beating them and telling them to get up. And he said, Nothing that the Nazis could do would make this person get up to the point where they would eventually shoot them in the head or shoot them into a mass grave or send them to um, a gas chamber. And he said it was, he noticed that. And remember, he was a neuro 
neuroscientist and psychologist and one of the most revered ones in Vienna before that. And a lot of the prisoners in the different camps um, would call him doctor still and they would come to him, you know, and discuss things with him. And he was sick and he had edemas and he had simmering typhus and things like that. Um, but he would do suicide watches in the camps to try to prevent people from committing suicide. Um, and he said that people who had a sense of humour, who had a goal in mind, who had a positive mindset, were able to find positive things in even the worst things. People who had a job on the outside that they wanted to go back to, particularly people who had family, that they didn't know what had happened to them and they wanted to get out to find out if they lived. He found that a massive driving force, the not knowing was the driving force, particularly for Frankel himself. He found that people who had jobs that served the needs of other prisoners through duty found meaning. And he said, as I said, that not knowing if his wife or his mother or his siblings had survived uh, was a massive driving force for him to get out and to find them. His father had unfortunately succumbed uh, next to him and died in one of the camps. Uh, he said if he had known that... His entire family were dead, which they were, except for one sister. His wife was gone. His his mum was gone. Uh, they both died in Bergen-Belsen. He said he would have laid down and died himself, but the not knowing was what sustained him. He had to live for that. Um, and I'm going to read you an excerpt of his book, which was actually the excerpt of when I was introduced to this, when I saw someone talking about it um, recently, just online and and kind of writing about it, um, I they referred to this passage and I want to read it to you. It's it's a couple of pages long, but I feel like it's it's really important because when they read it, I immediately ordered the book because it just it just stood out to me so much um, and it, it, it was so profound. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him anymore. I once had a dramatic demonstration of the close link between the loss of faith in the future and this dangerous giving up. F, my senior block warden, a fairly well-known composer and librettist, confided in me one day. I would like to tell you something, doctor. I have had a strange dream. A voice told me that I could wish for something, that I should only say what I wanted to know and all my questions would be answered. What do you think I asked? That I would like to know when the war would be over for me. You know what I mean, doctor, for me. I wanted to know when we, when our camp, would be liberated and our sufferings come to an end. And when did you have this dream, I asked. In February 1945, he answered. 
It was then the beginning of March. What did your dream voice answer? Furtively, he whispered to me, March 30th. When F told me about his dream, he was still full of hope and convinced that the voice of his dream would be right. But as the promised day drew nearer, the war news which reached our camp made it appear very unlikely that we would be free on the promised date. On March 29th, F suddenly became ill and ran a high temperature. On March 30th, the day his prophecy had told him that the war and suffering would be over for him, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. To all outward appearances, he had died of typhus. Those who know how close the connection in between the state of mind of a man, his courage and hope, or lack of them, and the state of immunity of his body will understand that the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that the expected liberation did not come, and he was merely disappointed. This suddenly lowered his body's resistance against the latent typhus infection. His faith in the future and his will to live had become paralysed and his body fell victim to illness. And thus the voice of his dream was right after all. The observations of this one case and the conclusion drawn from them are in accordance with something that was drawn to my attention by the chief doctor of our concentration camp. The death rate in the week before Christmas, between Christmas 1944 and New Year's 1945, increased in camp beyond all previous experience. In his opinion, the explanation for this increase did not lie in the harder working conditions or the deterioration of our food supplies or a change of weather or new epidemic. It was simply that the majority of the prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again for Christmas. As the time drew near and there was no encouraging news, the prisoners lost courage and disappointment overcame them. This had a dangerous influence on their powers of resistance and a great number of them died. As we said before, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Nietzsche's words, he who has a why to live, for can bear with almost any how, could be the guiding motto for all psychotherapeutic and psychohygienic efforts regarding prisoners. Whenever there was an opportunity for it, one had to give them a why, an aim for their lives, in order to strengthen them to bear the terrible how of their existence. Woe to him who saw no sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. This, the typical reply with which such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from life anymore. What sort of answer can one give to that? I know that probably hit a lot of people. Um, I, I have patrons who have cancer at the moment um, and I, a lot of you have said that you've experienced a lot of loss with family or pets recently um, and I, I hope that that you know gave you you know something to think about or inspired you I would highly suggest you know buying uh, Victor Frankl's book um, but the reason that I read that was because it points to what 
what he found in his, it's called logotherapy, what he coined. The application of that um, is very much like what Yossi ended up, you know, doing. Yossi still had some fight in him. Yossi didn't know if Kevin had lived. He had to find Kevin. Kevin was out there and he was alone as far as Yossi knew. He found meaning in the hope that Kevin had survived and was searching for him right now and he just had to hold on for a little while longer even as everything declined. Yossi had incredible mental fortitude which I'm sure the IDF really built up in him but I also think that he was born with it to an extent. He also held out hope that Marcus was back in La Paz and the friends back in La Paz along with Marcus at this point had sounded the alarm. He realised that they should have by now because he hadn't returned for his belongings by the time he said he would. Um, The worst part of all of this at this stage was what I talked about in part one with Marcus where Kevin and Yossi just couldn't handle Marcus's complaining about his feet which ended up being trench foot which I talked about. And now Yossi knew exactly how it felt because he indeed had trench foot, but it was even worse than what Marcus had had. His feet were actually necrotizing. Um, they were dying. He had no skin on the soles of his feet. He said the flesh was completely exposed. It was oozing pus and blood. It was incredibly infected. And he essentially said his feet were just two bloody stumps. And he could only focus on his feet at this point. His feet and the pain of them outweighed any hunger, any fear, anything. It was completely honed in on just the pain in his feet. And that's when he made a snap decision. He needed something to distract him from his feet and to give him a shot of adrenaline so that he could continue walking because he was at pretty much the end. He was at around day 18 at this point. He said, quote, I couldn't take the pain. I dragged myself to a tree full of fire ants and shook it on my head. The waves of pain and adrenaline distracted me from my feet. I showered myself with the fire ants and on the waves of pain, I managed to get up and keep going, unquote. Yossi also got caught in a bog on this particular day, uh, pretty much right up to almost his neck. It was essentially like almost quicksand, uh, just thick mud when a storm hit the area and it was the biggest storm that the area had seen in a decade. He said, quote, the second swamp I fell in, I couldn't pull myself out. I was thinking of committing suicide. But then I thought that if I was going to kill myself, I should have done it in the first couple of days. After 19 days of struggle, there was no way I was dying then, unquote. It was around this time that he had been staying close to the river. He made his way back to um, a tiny little gravel part, the one he'd washed up on essentially, uh, 19 days before. And he saw a little turtle on the bank and obviously the immediate thought would be he would eat it immediately. You know, he said he pictured himself tearing off its shell and sinking his teeth into its raw flesh and eating it alive. But he looked at it and he said that the turtle looked up at him and he felt, you know, Yossi's very spiritual and stuff. He said he felt a really strong connection between him and the turtle, that they were both having the same experience um, of survival out here. And he actually didn't eat it. He just went without. Uh, Yossi 
said then that he knew he would probably die uh, within the next day or two and he needed to lie down and do so. But first he wanted to leave some sort of marking uh, to prove that he was there just in case anyone ever stumbled across this site one day, not that anyone ever came across here and they probably wouldn't for months and months. Um, and they would have answers for his family. And so he went down to this gravel bank and started using rocks that he could barely pick up because he was so weak to spell out his initials um, on, on, the, on the little beach part. Yossi made himself, uh, made his way to the river. Um, and as he went about this, uh, he looked up and there was Kevin Gale on a boat with a local Indigenous man called Abelardo Tudela, and he goes by the name Tico. Yep, Kevin survived. <laughs> so um, Kevin had been immersed in the river, clinging on for dear life for five days, and he had managed to get help, and he had been looking for Yossi for weeks. Kevin is the unsung hero of this story, and I often think... I think Yossi chose Kevin for a reason when they split and parted ways with Marcus and Carl, um, and we'll get into that. I think he had a premonition of sorts. Abelardo Tico. I actually went to school with a kid called Abelardo in primary school. I've never heard it before or since, um, and he was a lovely guy. Um, Tico had been paid by Kevin. So essentially he was a poor local village guy, Kevin, after he was saved after five days, was very skinny and undernourished, but nowhere near as bad as Yossi and hadn't really had the experience that Yossi had had, albeit he was out there for five days uh, in the cold, wet and dark, miles away from where Yossi was. Um, he had essentially been saved by local fishermen and they had taken him back to a local village and Kevin had very quickly kind of hot-footed it back to La Paz, hoping that Yossi was there. When he realised he wasn't, Kevin raised the alarm really quickly. He visited um, the different embassies of his different missing friends um, and then he went back to the village uh, where the villagers, Tico's village, uh, which was not the one that they started in. It was another one in this area, very, very remote, not a lot there. And he had paid Tico, this local guy, uh, to help him. Now, people had kind of told Kevin he was nuts. There was no way that Yossi was alive out there. But Kevin said, no, he's out there and I'm, I'm not going to stop. And Tico had not given up with Kevin. Uh, they were on their third day going up and down the river and calling for Yossi and searching for him uh, when they just happened to see him and, you know, fate intervened or destiny. Um, it was meant to happen. But Kevin had some interesting stories to tell Yossi, but Yossi was a skeleton and they had to get him help immediately. They got him back to Tico's village where the group was met with uh, fanfare, you know, from local villagers. Even the local villagers couldn't believe that Yossi had survived what he'd survived. Uh, and they kind of had a party for him and stuff. But Yossi had infections all over his body and he would end up spending about three months in hospital in La Paz. Uh, he had a blood infection. He had severe anemia, uh, a number of other things. But actually, once he was over that, he never had any physical or mental scars ever again, as he puts it. He never experienced PTSD. He never had any physical scars of his time 
and his body, because the body is incredible, bounced back, you know, immediately almost. Uh, there are photos of the two men, which I'll put on Patreon and on the website, standing pretty much the day that Yossi was discovered. Uh, there's one photo of Yossi in his check shirt and his jeans, and they're completely ripped to shreds. Uh, it's when Kevin and Tico found him, but there's another one of Kevin and Yossi shirtless with Tico back at the village, and he just looks like the jolliest, he just looks like the best guy. And he was incredibly poor, but he has a really happy ending as well, um, which I'm sure that you'll get something out of. Um, so one of the things that I'll be getting into in theories, and I really don't know how to get into this, but when Kevin and Yossi got back to the village, Yossi obviously wanted to know what had happened in the previous uh, three weeks or two and a half weeks since Kevin had been saved. And Kevin sat him down and he had a tail. He'd gone back to La Paz, obviously, and realising that Yossi wasn't there, uh, he also noticed that Kevin, um, sorry, Marcus and Carl were not there. And he was alarmed. Marcus and Carl should have been back by now, but Marcus had not come back to get his stuff and no one had, had seen him. Uh, so he started to panic. And he went to each individual embassy in La Paz asking after them and reporting them missing. He went to the Swiss embassy. Uh, he went to the Israeli embassy and he went to the Austrian embassy. Now, when he went to the Austrian embassy, uh, he was told when he gave the name Karl Ruprecht, uh, he was told by the authorities at the Austrian consulate that Karl Ruprecht was not a geologist, um, that he was actually a wanted criminal who had a warrant by Interpol issued for him and he had fled Austria on a fake passport um, and he was hiding out in Bolivia. Now, a lot of things that I told you in part one about Carl will suddenly start to be forming in your mind. And this is, this is, the, this is the twist and this is what I've really thought a lot about. So they hadn't made it back yet and he was really concerned. So Kevin, instead of just leaving, you wouldn't necessarily expect someone to go to these lengths to help you. Kevin immediately, despite being sick himself, went back to this village and organised a search party for the three men. I should tell you now that Marcus, Stam and Carl Ruprecht were never seen again beyond the time that Kevin and Yossi split up with them that day on the trek. Um, not a trace of them was found, not any of their belongings, not any human excrement, as they put it, uh, no trace um, of them. So I will get into that in theories, don't worry. The central mystery of the story, I suppose, is what happened to Marcus and Carl when they split with Kevin and Yossi that day. And the last thing that they saw was Marcus walking into the thick foliage, into the jungle, hiking his way out. Or a bigger question, who the hell was Carl Ruprecht? And this is a question that I've really tossed up and kept coming back to over the last probably um, nine, ten months since I saw the movie Jungle and was first introduced to this. But as I said, unlike some people who watch a 90-minute movie, and then take to online forums with insane um, theories about Yossi and um, Kevin eating Marcus because they were hungry um, or killing him because he was annoying them. Um, these people like are not only insulting uh, to Yossi and Kevin, but it also shows just 
the fact that people are unable or unwilling, most, a lot of people, to look any deeper below the surface. They're not going to read the book. They're going to read one article uh, that skims the surface and they're going to watch a movie and then they're stuck in their like cognitive dissonance of a crazy conspiracy and usually these conspiracies, you know, are not the case. It's usually... um it's it's just not. So I've looked at a lot of different opinions and found many of them hugely insulting, although I'm open to all opinions and I take things on board and kind of weigh things up. And I have come to the conclusion before I get into why and some ex- additional research I've done, I've come to the conclusion that Carl indeed existed and that things went down the way that you're seeing Kevin say they did. This is why I couldn't talk about Kevin being interviewed on the um, that it's I survived something the show uh, because I didn't want to give it away that Kevin had survived. So I've written down the reasons why I think that Carl was real and the evidence that we have, and I'm using the book Jungle to flesh this out as well as a bit of additional research that I've done. The first thing is we have a photo of Carl. Now, no one ever says where this photo comes from or anything. I'll put it on the website and on the Patreon. It's kind of a sepia tone, um, very kind of early 80s film. <coughs> Sorry, guys, I almost choked to death. Um, so the reason that I believe that Yossi or Kevin took this picture and this was theirs and it was in their camera, which they left back with their belongings in La Paz and that's why they were able to have this picture, it wasn't destroyed on this trip, was I'm I'm basing it on the fact that in the book Jungle, Yossi talks about when they're walking around looking for supplies to pack for the trip, that they go into a shop that sells kind of like cool South American hats and stuff and they all decide that they're going to get hats for this trip and he says that Carl buys this kind of wide-brimmed hat and in the picture, that's what he's wearing. So that's what I presume that that's why I know. Now, it's not a great quality picture. You can see his face and a lot of people have zoomed in on his face, but the, there's two. The bigger one is like the longer shot pretty much from his waist up. Um, secondly, I don't know about confirmation of the name and I really, I, I love names and I love looking into where they come from and things. Um, but I don't know if when they said that Carl Ruprichter fled on a fake passport from Austria to South America and had been out there for years and he was wanted by Interpol, um, whether he fled on a fake passport in the name of Carl Ruprichter, which pretty much puts an end to any kind of diving deep into any guy called Carl Ruprichter, or whether or not he fled like on on a fake passport, but then just used his actual name in South America. Now, I kind of tend to believe that this is the case because a lot of Nazis after the war fled to South America on fake identities, but then it was totally normal for them to walk around using their actual names um, in South America, which a lot of them did, including Joseph Mengele for a long time. Um, but Interpol often has the skills because they've been around for a hundred years to know different people's aliases. Now, if you're wondering what Carl fled for, all it states is that it was radical invol- involvement with radical leftist organisations, which also ties in really strongly for me as well. 
Now, a lot of people who theorize point to the fact that there's no Interpol warning, but you wouldn't expect there to be. There's not an Interpol warning for half the people I've covered on this. Interpol's pre-selective with their yellow and red warnings. And at this point in time, 40 years on for a political crime, you wouldn't expect it to be there. So of course, it's not going to be there. And people who watch the movie and then contact Interpol asking for details, they're not going to give you that. Camelia Spencer doesn't even have an Interpol um, warrant for her. So I just want you to keep that in mind. She was abducted by a dad only 20 years ago. It doesn't, it's not just instant, you know, these people seem to think it works like in the movies. So if he did travel on a fake passport and was using this fake name in the name Carl Ruprichter, the trail ends there and nothing anyone can do can find him. But my belief for some reason, just in my gut, is that he left on a fake passport that he was able to get, which would have been way easier back in the day in 1970s when he would have fled to South America, which a lot of people did. It was the place to go fleeing crimes and still continues to be today, sadly. I believe he fled on the fake passport, but he actually started just using his actual name, um, in South America because he never expected people to really look into it because we didn't have the internet stuff. You couldn't Google him or anything. You just took people on their word. So what I did is I went on Ancestry. I've been doing some work for a family member and my world trial was set to expire. So um, I used up the last couple of days of it looking into the name Carl Ruprichter. In short, I there was nothing groundbreaking for me. I looked at the name Ruprichter initially and the history of it. And Ruprichter is not a particularly common uh, German surname. It is most commonly found in present day in Switzerland and Austria. And Carl said he was Austrian, but I mean, he could have been any country that speaks German around this area, Switzerland, Germany. Um, He did speak German. We know this because he was often speaking it with with Marcus, you know, because his Spanish was kind of weird. So Marcus, as I talked about on part one, would be the uh, translator almost. At the moment, from what I could find, there's around 120 Ruprichters in Europe. Most of them are in Switzerland and Austria, overwhelmingly Austria. And one is named Carl. Now I'll get this out of the way really quickly. This has given way to ridiculous forums again of um, putting up a guy's picture who's named Carl Ruprichter who lives in uh, a city in Austria. There's one photo of this dude. He has a Facebook. He has grandchildren and children the whole life, all right? And the dude, unless Mengele was able to figure out how to change people's eye colours like he was trying to, uh, and this guy had a total head transplant. It is not him. Uh, And people saying, oh, it's him. He's identical. People are living in La La Land. The dude has totally different color eyes. His nose is a completely hooked nose shape, which goes down and hooks around. Carl Ruprichter in the picture that we have of him has a upturned nose. Now, noses and things continue to grow, but the shape of them does not. This guy has totally different ears. His eyes are way more close together than Carl Ruprichter's were. In short, people are insane and get carried away with this stuff. It's half-baked. It kind of really started annoying me because this guy just shares a name with it and I want to rule it out because, you know, whatever. So it got me thinking though that Carl must 
maybe because it's such a rare Austrian or German or, you know, it's a German surname, but mostly Eastern Austria. Because it's so rare, when I was looking on Ancestry, I found a number of them that were born in the late 1800s, a couple in the early 1900s. But working backwards, Carl, if you say that he was in his mid to late 30s in 1981, he would have been born, you know, around 1940 to 1945, just to give it a bit of leeway. And I couldn't find one that was born around that time in Austria. But I want to say that Ancestry doesn't have every person's birth certificate on there. Uh, Mine's not on there, Um, especially not people back then and especially not wartime babies, which I believe Carl or whoever he was probably was. So that's one thing. But some people, I thought, you know, he could have taken that from a grandfather or something um, because it's a rare enough name that you'd have to know someone with it. Now, there's a couple of different variations of it. I found that Ruprecht, because Ruprecht is R-U-P-R-E-C-T-E-R. And then if you take off the E-R and have Ruprecht, Ruprecht is actually more common than Ruprechter. Um, so there was quite a few of them. Karl is a common German slash Austrian name. So I was thinking I looked up spelling Karl with a C to try different things. I went through the different kind of family trees that are there for the different Ruprechters and there was no Karls. Now I will get into it, but there was a couple of, uh, Josephs or Josephs, which if you remember from part one, I told you to remember that in the book, Karl says that he has an uncle and Yossi provides the address of that uncle in the letter back to Moshe before he leaves for this trip. Another reason why we know that Carl existed, because he gave this address and Yossi couldn't have just made up this address, which I'll get into why, because I also looked into this region. So if Carl had parents that were probably born around 1920 because people had kids younger then, so I backtracked to from the late 1800s, his grandparents essentially. And there was a couple of Ruprechters. There was one Ruprechter with two Ps instead of one, which I found interesting. Um, There was some dating back to the 1600s Ruprechters. So, but when I was looking into it, they generally all worked their way back to the same family. And it was just people who had uploaded records trying to find their families and building their own family trees, which you can do on Ancestry because it was the same names over and over again, but they just misspelt it as they were finding information, uploading it into their own family tree. There was a Carl Rupert born in Vienna in 1893, who married in Vienna in 1925. There was another one who was born in 1863 and he married in 1899. There is also some Carl Ruprechters with a C instead of a K. Then I found the Carl Ruprechter with two Ps and he was born in 1907 and he married in 1935. But obviously none of these people could be Carl Ruprechter because it would mean that he was 80 years old and Yossi was saying he was looked like he was in his 30s. So it's not possible. So there is really, it's up for questioning who the hell Carl Ruprechter was. Um, and I believe his details just probably aren't uploaded to Ancestry. Not everything is there. Secondly, the reason that I think Carl existed is pretty obvious. The villagers in the town of Azariamus, where they set off from, had dealt with him before and he was with them on this trip. So that puts paid to any bullshit theory from people in online forums who wrote horrific stuff about Yossi and Kevin eating their friend Marcus, who had a bacterial infection. So as if they're going to 
be doing that um, because it gets into your bloodstream and stuff. I don't think they're that stupid. Um, and then in addition, as I said, Yossi wrote the letter to Moshe before departing because Carl had provided the name of the uncle, which I talked about in part one, and his uncle's address. Now, because people don't generally read the book and they just watch the movie and read one article, this part is never mentioned, which is why if it turns up on another podcast, like they've stolen it from me because it's I've never seen it mentioned, is that he provided it in that letter and that's why I read it to you. So I kind of dived into that address and it, it, it was very confusing because the way that the Bolivian addresses are set up, Benny is the region. Um, I'll read you the address again. Um, so he wrote, I'm going to read you just the letter again, this part. The American Swiss guys are very good friends of mine. The Austrian is a geologist. He has been working in Bolivia for the past nine years looking for gold and uranium and other precious metals in the jungle. He is coming with us as our paid guide. He has an uncle with a ranch in Bolivia. The uncle's name is Josef Ruprichter and his address in is Santa Rosa Ranch, El Progreso, Reyes, Benny. So I had no idea kind of what this was and Flash forward, I have looked up Joseph Rupertta. Um, There was a Joseph related to a Rupertta on Ancestry, but not with the surname Rupertta, and they died in Austria. Um, I started thinking maybe he travelled on the name Joseph Rupertta. That's up for debate. There's no firm evidence of this. Otherwise, Yossi would have found it years ago, and I'm only building on probably work that he did over a period of time after this to try to find out who he was. Um, I searched for this ranch. So Benny is the region uh, in the northwest uh, in this region where they were travelling, where this ranch was supposedly where his uncle lived, which I talked about on part one. The city, the town, which is about 8,000 people today, is the town of Reyes that falls into the region of Benny. I couldn't find what El Progreso was in that. I looked up what El Progreso means and there seems to be a lot of schools with El Progreso. So I wasn't sure if it was um, courtesy of your, you send a letter and they collect your mail at a specific business, if that's what El Progreso was. But Santa Rosa Ranch, there's no Santa Rosa Ranch there currently, but Ranches get bought out and change names all the time. And there's actually Santa Rosa ranches all over the place. There's a massive one in the south of Bolivia, um, which is actually like a tourist destination where people can go and stay and starve. But that's not the one that, you know, Carl provided the address to here. Now, you're probably thinking Carl just made the address up, which I personally think is probably the case, but I thought it was worth getting into it. So the town of Reyes is is very rural. There's not much here, but ranches, a small town and a lot of land, even today. So in the 80s, it would have been even more kind of regional. It is not somewhere tourists would ever end up all that tourists go to, there's no reason for it. There's just a church there. You wouldn't stop there and you wouldn't be told to go there as a tourist. So I was thinking that this is probably a place that was isolated enough that Carl knew the address of it. He'd been through it before, hiding out and travelling around and conning people, uh, which I think is how he probably got by for a time. And he just used that address um, to kind of firm up his story. There's no way in hell that Yossi and Kevin could have made that address up, especially since the letter 
that he sent to Moshe was dated the day before they left for this trip, if you get what I mean. There is no mention of Yossi or anyone as they kind of did a bit of a look for Marcus and Carl after Yossi was saved. But obviously Yossi eventually had to kind of go back to his life in Israel. Um, And there's no mention ever that anyone went to this address, which I find really interesting and tried to track the uncle down. I wouldn't expect the police to, but I just find that element of it a little bit weird. Either way, the uncle was, he's according to Carl, which should be the main, that should be the title of this episode, according to Carl. The uncle was old in 1980, so he would be dead by now. And Carl specifically said, if you remember in that letter, he said, he's old, he lives alone, he's got no one else and I help him sometimes and he doesn't speak to my family back home. So did he have an uncle there or was the ranch name just made up? Because it's a very generalised name. There's a Santa Rosa ranch in uh, Texas is a big one. Um, There's one in New Mexico. Uh, Santa Rosa is one of the most common names of churches and ranches and you know, across the world. You've got them all across Spain as well. However, when I was looking at Google Maps, I looked and two hours up the road from the town of Reyes along a straight shot road is a very even smaller place, which is quite a rural town called Santa Rosa de uh, Yacuma or Yacma. It's a small town that today has around 4,300 people living there. It's located on the Yacuma River, which got me thinking because Carl seemed to travel along rivers, but I also believe him when he told them that he couldn't swim, which makes me think that there was an element of truth in that, which I'll get into why I think he didn't do anything to them. It is around 100 kilometres, this particular town, Santa Rosa, from where they were going to finish up their trip and fly back to La Paz, uh, Ruren Bark. Uh, so regardless, I believe... Most of this is a dead end and it's a made-up story by Carl or whoever Carl was and it means nothing. Um, many Europeans at the time, particularly Germans and Austrians, uh, had they had a massive influx across South America, including in Bolivia, um, after the war, people moving out for a new life. Um, and it would have been easy for him to blend in there as a German or, you know, an Austrian. Um, I don't believe he'd been there for as long as he claimed to or had had much interactions with people because, again, in the book, Yossi talks about how he spoke kind of weird Spanish for someone who had been there for so long. We had a girl, it's funny, a couple of hours ago, I was looking at the news. Um, I'm not going to, like, do a story or anything, um, but we had a girl in Australia who was recently let out of prison after serving like five years in a Colombian prison for drugs and she's come back to Australia. She speaks, like she's got more of an Australian accent than me but I just saw she was doing a Q&A earlier on Instagram and I was watching it and people were like sending her abuse and stuff and she's apologised and she's done her time and people need to leave her alone, stop sending her horrible stuff. Uh she did her time. She got busted and she's turned her life around. She's got married to a woman that she met over there and all this stuff. She's become a personal trainer. She's lost heaps of weight. She looks amazing. And she's trying to right wrongs and, you know, she's allowed to try to do that. But she speaks with a weird accent, like, because she's only been speaking Spanish for the last, like, six years and she's been out on parole and not allowed to leave Colombia for a couple of years. I think she got out in 2020. And so she speaks with this weird, it's like what Hilaria Baldwin tries to do, 
but this girl Cassie is actually doing it without even realizing it and heaps of people were writing why are you faking like this accent and she's like it's just because of how Spanish the sounds come out so different that it actually just alters the way that you talk when you speak in English and I've also noticed that with um, the crown princess of Denmark is actually an Australian princess Mary she met the crown prince in a bar in Sydney when she was there for the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and didn't believe him when he said he was the crown prince of Denmark and flash forward 20 years she's the crown princess of Denmark but she speaks Danish almost entirely and she had to learn it from scratch and now when she speaks English she went from being a full-blown bogan from Tasmania to sounding really funny because the Danes tend to talk uh, with their tongue on the roof of their mouth a lot almost and it's altered the way that her mouth pronounces things in English and so what I'm getting at is maybe that's just the way that German speakers speak when they sound Spanish. I'd be interested to know, are you German? And when you speak Spanish, do you think you sound kind of legitimate? Um, that would be like really interesting. Or I've got a couple of German listeners, uh, particularly uh, patrons, Lauren and Sophie, both of them have lived in Germany. Um, yeah. And I just wonder, you know, do you sound weird if you are an actual German born there and you speak Spanish, will you ever sound fully Spanish or will you always sound weird to people? But staying low and going to these small towns makes sense, especially um, when the book discusses how when they got to the town of Apollo and started their trek, do you remember how I told you that the police said you should go to the local police station and register? And Carl refused to and told the boys to keep walking. He said it was all bureaucracy and red tape. That's why I bought that stuff up because it points to the fact that he was trying to stay off the grid. Um, additionally, I can't confirm if these supposed rumours were true about certain aspects of what he'd been doing there. So there were rumours from local people who had had run-ins with Carl that he had more than once taken foreign tourists out into the Amazon and left them there. They're, they never go out any further than that. And because a lot of this has become law and as people add weird conspiracies, it muddies the actual truth. But Yossi and Kevin heard when they were searching for Carl and Marcus that they were like, oh, yeah, that guy, Carl Ruprichter, he's taken people out claiming to be a geologist and a tour guide and then he just leaves them out there. And I was thinking, yeah, but for what benefit, like other than robbing them and then leaving them? There was no... No one ever said that he murdered them or that the people never came back. Apparently in like one story, the person had come back and reported it and that's how they knew. So he's taking them out there for what reason? Like to then just leave them? Like why would why would this man take three grown men who were actually bigger and stronger than him out for what was going to be a month or more into the jungle at essentially a really cheap price and actually have to put his own money down to do what? Then rob them to recoup his own money. This reminds me of the old kite case because that person put down their bond. I don't know what you guys call it in the States, like your security deposit for the rental. And the first month's rent and it paid L in order to get access to kill him. And people, as the cops said in that case, people don't generally pay their victims to access them to kill them. And the guys 
at Carl's urging for safety, had left their belongings and valuables back with friends in La Paz, which Carl told them to. So what is the benefit of any of this? Because they didn't have anything kind of um, expensive on them to take. And that's why I've kind of formulated my own theory. He even offered them that gold discount I talked about in part one, where he said that he, when they mined the gold, he they only had to pay him half up front, 3,000 Bolivianos, which worked out to be like $70 for over a month or whatever. And then they would mine the gold and then he would buy the gold off them in order for it to be square. Now, why would he do that if he wasn't expecting to be able to mine gold? He's actually making his life impossible in the jungle, struggling and eating monkey meat and stuff for no apparent reason. Like the build-up, you don't generally have a build-up of a month in order to kill three guys and rob them of nothing. So I do think Carl knew these parts. I believe he had hid out there at times or done random stuff out there at times. I believe he'd kind of used random names, which is why we can't really trace a lot of it. It was the 80s. It was easy. There was no 24-7 news. And we're talking about no internet, no instant Interpol warrants, but also no real cooperation between a military dictatorship in Bolivia at the time and back in Europe. Now, that's the other thing. They said that he left Austria for radical because he's because he was involved with radical leftist groups. Now, I don't know why he'd leave Austria for that because Austria seems like a better place to be caught and put in jail than South America. And I don't know what the threat was in Austria, you know, in 1960 or whatever, but it would make sense. Again, that ties in because at the time we've got a military coup going on and we've got kind of left-wing guerrilla movements trying to um, overthrow and get back the reign of the country. So maybe Carl wanted to get involved with that and felt like that was the place to kind of get into that. I actually believe that Carl was on and off doing what he said he did. I believe that he was mining at these sites, like he said to the boys that I read in part one. I believe he was breaking into sites and quarries that were shut down. He was mining at them because they were shut down for the wet season, if you remember. They shut... I believe he said from the shot from October to January or something. I said it on part one. So he would go there to recoup his money, knowing that no one would find him because it's so isolated and they've shut up shop for that amount of time. And he also knew that this canyon, the Tuiki River, spread out into the San Pedro Canyon and that he knew and explain to the boys how bad it was going to get, that the walls would be on either side and that you'd hit this waterfall eventually, which indicates to me that he'd been up there before. But then he couldn't swim, so why was he so gung-ho about rafting? But then I remembered that the first time around, their first attempted trek before they threw it in and went back to the village to try it again after they'd rested, remember when they got to the first village, Azarimus, And he had said that there would be a raft and a guide there and stuff and there didn't end up being one. And he said, all right, we're just going to have to do it on foot. Maybe he never wanted to tell them that he couldn't swim or anything like that because they would think that was sus. Why would a guy who lives out in these parts who works on rivers and with water and why would he not be able to swim? And then they'd start to question his story. So 
maybe when they got lost the first time around and had to turn back, Carl kind of had to relent and say, all right, we have to go down the raft. And my theory isn't really one that I have seen before, but I've really weighed it up. I believe that Carl intended to use the three men to mine gold for him, exactly like he said, that he would get there on that raft because they could swim and it would kind of take the focus off him. They would get to that shutdown quarry, they would mine it like he had done before. He would then either kill them with the gun that he'd bought or he would just leave them there. He would rob them and he would be left with the money and he would never have He'd also have been paid by them as well, if you get what I mean. But I believe that when the wet season hit, Carl wasn't expecting that. He did, he wasn't expecting this storm of the decade to hit. And when it hits and Marcus suddenly couldn't walk with his foot, things got really dire and they had to get on the raft and he realised that he actually needed these young men more than he initially thought he would. And I think that's what happened. I think eventually he just tapped out and decided he was done with this whole rort or this whole scam and he was going to walk out and he kind of encouraged the other three boys to walk out with him but he wasn't expecting Kevin and Marcus to say, Kevin and Yossi to say that they'd stay on the raft and continue down the river. He wasn't really fussed if Marcus came with him or not from what Yossi said so it wasn't like he was targeting any of them at that point. I think he was just over it and was regretting this particular scam I can't tell you what happened to uh, Carl and Marcus, but I don't believe Carl killed Marcus like is one of the theories um, that he got sick of him and killed him or he got sick of him and ate him for meat because he had told those guys that if you eat monkey, it's almost identical to eating human flesh. Um he was probably just riling them up by saying that. We just don't know. I just believe he was a petty criminal and pretty full of hot air. Um, and I believe what Yossi does ultimately, Yossi's theory is that the two men ultimately succumbed to the elements or a tree fell on them in this wild, wild storm, or one of them fell off a cliff and then the other one succumbed to the elements and were eaten by local wildlife. And I think that makes the most sense. It was wild weather and and that's likely to have happened. I think just by pure divine intervention or something, Yossi and Kevin survived. I actually don't believe Carl wanted to be alone at this stage. Um, and I believe he thought that he did know the way out of the jungle. It's just luck Yossi and Kevin didn't go with him in that split second when Yossi chose to go with Kevin. You know, it was a, it was basically choosing between life or death. Everyone really had a choice when they split up. So Carl is a really kind of, you know, (laughs) mysterious dude in terms of his motivations. Um, People who read one line about this case and then theorise that Marcus didn't exist are also insulting. There are pictures of Marcus. I'll put them on Patreon um, and the website. Uh, His family is still in Switzerland. Um, You can find, if you look hard enough, news articles about him, uh, his disappearance and saying that he's a tennis champion from back in Switzerland. Um, And his sister or his half-sister went on to become um, a politician in Switzerland as well. So uh, just shut up with that nonsense that Marcus didn't exist. Um, Marcus's mum seemingly was also kind of into spiritual stuff, much like Marcus was, because remember he said he was a clairvoyant. She went to a spiritualist or a clairvoyant um, after Marcus's disappearance and uh, 
the clairvoyant told them that Marcus was alive and living in Peru, which, uh, no, he's not, sorry. Like it goes against everything, how he lived. If you read the book, just his personality, he's, he loved being around people, um, he loved his family and stuff. It's just, I guess, just giving people false hope. Um, but these kind of whack mediums need to stop. Uh, people before the internet could essentially just disappear, especially in South America. You could just use whatever name you wanted day to day. Yossi tried to track them down, but he ultimately couldn't. And after he recovered and uh, he and Kevin kind of went their separate ways, Yossi, Yossi returned to Israel. After returning to Israel, Yossi went to Tel Aviv University. He achieved um, two degrees, one in Jewish philosophy and one in business administration. He also got very heavily into his Jewish faith, which had always kind of sustained him. And he got very deep into studying like uh, Kabbalah traditions. And to this day, he's still very interested in different religions and cultures across the world, um, particularly ones that you know, uh, date back thousands of years in South America. Uh, 10 years after he almost died in the Amazon, he decided that he was ready to go back to Bolivia. It had always called to him. And he had always wanted to give back to the people of the village that Tico belonged to, who had essentially saved him and gone out of their way to look for him um, when everyone else had given up hope. And this village is called San Jose de uh, Eucapiamonis. <laughs> I'm never saying that again. He ultimately was able to secure them a grant uh, for their village because there was no tourism and they were very poor and there was no real reason for tourists to come up these parts. Uh, so they really didn't have anything to barter with. Um, so he got them 1.25 million US dollars and with that, uh, he helped them build a solar-powered eco-lodge, which is right near their village in the national forest that this whole episode takes place in, which is the uh, Medidi National Park. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and he also put half of that money into training the local people to manage it, and it's entirely managed by the local villagers, every single aspect of it. All Yossi did was set it up. If you remember when I talked about how Yossi always looked up to Henry Charrier, but he also looked up, he, his dream was to go out and find this remote tribe and to be accepted into it and to marry one of the, you know, tribe's women and have a shamanic ceremony. Well, sometimes manifestation or visualisation maybe works because that's what happened with Yossi. He married a local tribe's woman from this village and he had a shamanic ceremony. Now, Tico, there was a, I saw an article about him. Uh, he ended up helping run uh, this solar village that is still there today. Um, and I'll shout it out kind of at the end of this. Um, Tico went from basically being a poor dude with a boat and nothing else, a little rickety boat. Uh, it says that he now wears a gold watch and drives a uh, Range Rover. So Tico's doing pretty good now and he deserves every bit of it. Yossi ended up working uh, for about four years at this eco lodge, helping set it up and working in the Amazon. Unfortunately, as is the case uh, with governments in this part of the world, they're planning a hydroelectric project in this part of the Medidi National Park, 
which would essentially wipe out uh, this particular eco retreat that they run. And um, it would put an end to any potential for tourism in the region and essentially lead to the demise of a lot of these people. So that's nice, isn't it? Yossi ended up moving to Australia um, to help. He ended up setting up a bunch of drug and alcohol detox centres, which is really sad, but like that he had to come to Australia to do that. But we have like, we're like the meth capital here. And Melbourne was the heroin capital of the world for a while. Yossi has been married three times. He has four kids. Um, their names are all kind of uh, shamanic names. Mia, Kayam, Nassim and Shalem. Um, or Hebrew names as well, obviously. Um, in 2009, Yossi returned to Israel for a time with his wife and now and children. Now they split up their time between Australia, the US and Israel. And he travels the world as a motivational speaker. And you can book him online if you Google his name. You can also follow him on Instagram and other social media channels. He's currently married to a woman called Belinda, as far as I know. And when he's in Australia, he lives and runs a retreat in Byron Bay, which is a very hippie part of uh, kind of on the Queensland, New South Wales border, which more and more people are moving to. And part of the movie Jungle was filmed in our rainforests in Queensland here in Australia uh, with that, the Daintree rainforests and different rainforests doubling up as the Bolivian Amazon, which is kind of cool. And I didn't realize that when I was watching it. Um, He is a spiritual leader of sorts. He's currently 63. And I think Yossi is kind of awesome. He's also on top of that started numerous successful tech startups, an interior design company using sustainable materials. He's just like uh, got his fingers in a lot of pies um, and he's kind of a renaissance man. He's into everything. Uh, Yossi told the Jewish Chronicle he's still friends with Kevin uh, Gail today. If you want to know what happened to Kevin after all of this, Yossi said, quote, he was an American Catholic, but a couple of years after the accident, he met an Israeli girl and now he's Jewish and lives on a kibbutz near Jerusalem, unquote. Kevin never wrote a book, but he was on the I Survived or um, I keep forgetting what it's called. It's like a cheaper version of I Survived. Um, I shouldn't have lived. That's what it's called. Um, but he was interviewed on it, but you'll see kind of got all the, he gets all the acclaim for this story. Kevin exists and there was so much hate in the comments of that episode on YouTube because people just watch that episode and think that's the whole story. And this is what starts to really annoy me about just the internet and people's opinions um, and they were just saying, you know, they did something to him just based on this 30-minute episode of this show. Kevin's just really like, he's got a bit of a flat effect. He's a quiet guy. I think he's just gets things done and puts his head down. We don't all have to be histrionic all the time. Um, Kevin still is alive and lives his life how he chooses. He never wrote a book or anything and he's pretty quiet. Um it was also 40 years ago when this happened. You have to kind of detach yourself a little bit in order to get by day to day and to compartmentalise it. Yossi has like the chatty personality. Um, Yossi's written a number of books, including Jungle, which sold millions of copies and has been translated into 15 languages. The Eco Lodge that Yossi helped found, if you would like to visit it, um, takes bookings it's so kind of, it's not, I wouldn't, it's not cheap to get there. 
uh, the entire thing is start to finish. You have to walk from the river, like three kilometers. Um, you have to have a certain level of fitness. It's so far back. There's no roads that lead here or anything like that. The website, it's called Charlatan and the website is charlatan.com, which is C-H-A-L-A-L-A-N. It's called Charlatan Eco Lodge in the Medidi National Park. Um, the whole thing, you can buy a three day packages and things. And, um, it's like little, hut bungalows everything's totally sustainable apparently the food's amazing it's got a perfect five star five star review overall on google from i think like 300 ratings um as well as on facebook people's photos are incredible you have your own personal guide the reason that it's not cheap is to sustain it but also how much goes into they have to come and get you and stuff it's all on the website um so if you ever get to do it i will probably be jealous forever. Yossi does not live there, so you won't meet him there, but you'll be supporting these local people and maybe you'll meet Tico. So what did Yossi take away from this entire experience? He spoke to the um, publication Jewish Unpacked (laughs) when the movie was released. He actually liked the movie a lot. So, I mean, all that matters is that he liked it. You know, most people did. Most reviews are that they liked it. I did like it. I just don't like Potter. So he said what he took away from this whole experience was, quote, your faculties kick in. Survival is about efficiency because energy is scarce. I discovered that I'm much stronger, smarter and more able than I believed myself to be. It's inspiring the way Kevin came back for me, risking his own life. He was a true hero, unquote. Yossi said he has no mental or physical scars from his experience. Um, He said, quote, the only trauma I suffered was existential. I had no physical trauma. I healed very fast. I had no emotional trauma. I didn't have one nightmare. I never felt fear. I didn't think of the jungle as my enemy, unquote. So, um, that is pretty much the end of the story, really, um, anticlimactic, but at least it's a happy ending. And it's happy in the sense that it's very unique for me to do this. I don't think I've ever really told a full story like this that has somebody living at the end of it. Um, so I hope that you've enjoyed this um, so far. And if you want to switch off now, kind of that's the end of, of Yossi Ginsburg's story, Kevin Gale, Marcus Stammen. Carl Ruprichter, if Carl Ruprichter was actually a person and that's that's up for debate. Got a couple of reviews to read to you if you want to stick around for that that just made me laugh out loud of the movie. Um, people are just horrible. They really are. Um, someone wrote, I couldn't wait for all of them to get ripped apart by the Jaguars that was supposedly everywhere. Two stars out of ten. Um, this one Oh, this was the one that I talked about earlier. Here's the big fault in this story. They were trying to get back over the river because the one with the sore foot couldn't walk any further. When they decide to split, he goes walking back. (laughs) That's why it's important for context. (laughs) There was no track along the river. Um, This person, um, hang on one second. I'm just going through them. Um, 
I used to be enthralled by adventurers, the one who trekked to the North Pole, the ones who sailed down to Antarctica, the Lewis and Clarks and the Everest conquerors. These were not only men of great courage, but men of great intellect who actually foresaw the dangers and planned for them. Fast forward to these idiots who head off into the Amazon jungle in Bolivia with not much more than a Bic lighter and a bag of cookies. I have no admiration for them whatsoever. Um, the acting is pretty flat all round and Radcliffe's accent goes from Tel Aviv to central London. <laughs> um, and this person wrote, the thunderbolt stain on Potter's forehead has shifted into a living maggot this time. This person just wrote, Jewish guy gets lost in woods, two stars, <laughs> which I don't think. And this is the one where I actually burst out laughing just because, so I just read reviews. Some of the people have such a way with words. This person gave it one star and titled their IMDb um, review, quote, gigantic headed midget staggers around hotel garden for too long. <laughs> and then this one um, is someone who can't think beyond kind of surface level, which concerns me. Um, they said, not once can you see the guy make fire or catch something to cook or boil water for drinking. Not once. He got this nasty wound on his feet and he still walks around climbing and everything. Just walks around all the movie. It's insane. For like four weeks. He'd die in the second day in real life. Come on, guys, really? Someone has to tell that guy like it was wet season and add a, a, a little bit of context to what he said. But this is why people are just... <laughs> this is another one. An example is Yossi falling down rapids. Why didn't he just walk 200 metres further up the beach and meet his friend again? <laughs> because he floated for 30 minutes that's not 200 meters and there was no path along the beach so I just thought I'd read those and good luck to those people in their lives if you'd like to visit the website um it's unknown passage podcast at gmail <laughs> that's not a website unknown passage podcast.com I'll put up Yossi's episode page um if you'd like to join the patreon you can now do monthly or annual transactions or donations everything from one dollar a month through to five dollars gets you a shout out five dollars and over equivalent gets you um five dollars and over equivalent equivalent to five dollars us uh gets you a choice for an upcoming episode thank you to petra for choosing someone natural i hope that you listened to this and it was not at all like your trip that you are currently on as i record this in the backwoods of canada's Ontario region. If you don't want to become a patron, but you like the show and want to con contribute to it, uh, the PayPal is unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. I'm not currently taking case requests or anything like that. Um, and if you email, um, it may take me a bit to get back to you. Obviously, more and more emails come in as more people listen. And this is not my full-time job like a lot of podcasters. I have a full-time job and a life besides that. And this is still like my passion project on the side and it's staying that way. Um, so, yeah, leave a rating or review if you like the show. And, um, yeah, until next time, I will be back in a week or two uh, with your next adventure. Where are we going? <laughs>